A message from our sponsor, Pivot Lending Group, Littleton, Colorado. Pivot Lending Group provides a tailored mortgage lending experience with strong local builder and realtor relationships and customized loan services. We pivot to help you grow in your community and realize your personal home ownership goals. Visit us at pivotlending.com. Hi, this is Mitch Friedman with Pivot Lending Group. And today I am meeting with Jeff Lovato from the Lovato Group. And uh, Jeff, thanks for joining today and look forward to talking with you about yourself and your business and how you got started in real estate. How are you doing? Doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining today. And we're interested in learning more about you, Jeff, and your business and how you got into the real estate industry. And I think uh, your listeners are going to be very happy to hear what you have to say and learn more about you as we go through talking today. Sounds like a plan. Let's get it going. So kind of the obvious question to start out with is, is real estate. And uh, how long have you been in real estate? And, and what kind of triggers you to want to start in the real estate industry? If I were to go back, I would say my first year in real estate was officially 2004. I was working for a mortgage company, of all things, there. I was in Laramie, Wyoming. I had finished graduating from college in 2001, and I worked for an environmental company for a couple of years. The environmental company that I was working for picked up and moved to Colorado. My wife was still going to school, and I found myself working for a mortgage company after that. Great. Well, good education for the real estate community and the industry to learn a little bit about the mortgage side of things, because without the money, people can't buy the house. So it's good to have that foundation as you get into the the real estate side of things. And after uh, doing the mortgage side, what caused you to want to get into becoming a, a realtor? Well, let's see. Um, I was working for a mortgage company. It was a very small company, as you can imagine. Laramie's a very small town. There's about 30,000 people in total. I had a bunch of friends that were working on the mortgage side. Not None of them were on the real estate side. I was fascinated with real estate at that point in time. I just thought it was amazing that, you know, you could be a homeowner and you could have this beautiful place that not only you live in, but it also appreciates and builds wealth for you. So Mm -hmm. to be completely honest, I was always interested in real estate. And when I was a college student, I was working on the railroad. I actually did not buy a house. My dad didn't sit me down and say, he may have actually said it, but the way I remember it was, he did not set me down. So I ended up not buying. I was paying rent. And my hindsight, once I started dating my wife, her dad was into real estate. And I, I realized, oh, man, I could have owned the house. That's excellent. You know, that I have the same story. And that is my wife encouraged me to purchase our first home together. Even though I was a mortgage banker at the time, I was, I was a tad fearful of increasing my rent payment from one number and to a larger number and owning a property. But but as usual, it was the best thing we did. And I'm glad I listened to her. We have the same exact story. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of fast forward going over to your current group that you've started. Tell us a little about how you started the Lovato group. And really, what does that mean? Who are your teammates? What functions do they do? And how does that benefit your current clientele base? So I started the Lovato group shortly after I came over to Keller Williams. I was working for Chase Bank, and it was about 2014, if you recall. 2014, things were really tough on the mortgage side, to tell you the truth. 
I was working as a business development officer with Chase Bank on the foreclosure and short sale side. I was partnering with mortgage bankers back then. And what happened was they laid off about, I can't remember the exact number. I'm going to, I'm going to guess, I think it was about 15,000 mortgage bankers and people on the mortgage side in 2014. So they laid me off, gave me a nice three month severance package. And I used that three month severance package with a, maybe a little bit more savings to jump over to real estate. The market had flipped. And at that point in time, the short sales and the foreclosures were basically gone overnight, so to speak. And so I thought, well, it's going to be so easy. I'll just go sell houses because everybody wants to sell now. And I jumped over to Keller Williams with a team. And I was on that team for about eight to 10 months learning. And it was through a great friend. She was amazing. She taught me so much in a short period of time about sales and real estate. And uh, we ended up parting ways shortly thereafter. And that, that's when I started the inception of the Lovato Group. And truthfully, it was just myself at that point in time. That was back about five, five and a half years ago. So as we stand today, um, it's myself. There's three other agents on the team. I have a bilingual agent. His name is Christian. I also have another agent. His name is Rashad. And one more, his name is Brant. We all do both the listing side and the buy side. And we also have a director of operations on the team. Her name is Chrissy. Basically, the five of us currently, we're working towards making sure that all of our clients are serviced as we move forward. And there's really no bottleneck, especially on the on the buying side, where buyers need to get into properties when, when it's convenient for them. And we want to make sure that you know we're not holding them back from especially as quickly as properties are going today. So we have segmented parts on the team that specialize in certain aspects of the real estate transaction, which is, you know, that's an added benefit for friends and family and and clientele rather than one person trying to do the job of many. I think you're smart in creating a team as I have a small team as well. And we can be great at one thing and that's taking good care of our clients and communicating, which is a huge part of our industry. And I think uh, separating that out to have different people do different things on your team is a is a brilliant and smart idea. Uh, but you're now becoming a manager as well of people. And um, that's another piece of the puzzle that is, mm. is important to handle. But I think with your background from what you've shared so far, that you've got that as well, uh, the ability to do that and know how to work with people and how to uh, make sure they're taking care of your clients as you see fit. Yeah, and, and that's a great point. I always enjoyed management and helping other people grow. When I was working in the foreclosure industry, I had two teams at one point in time with about 15 to 20 team members in two different locations. One was in Westlake, Texas, and the other group was here in Denver. So I traveled back and forth, really enjoyed the management aspect of it all and and working with people. And I've always been the type of person that really enjoys group settings and, and kind of feeding off the energy of the group, so to speak. I think it would be important maybe for some people that don't know you to, to kind of get your take on if you were referred to by some a past client of yours and they said, a friend of theirs said, hey, I want to buy or sell a piece of real estate. And they came back and said, there's this amazing realtor named Jeff Lovato. What questions do you think that new client should bring to you to better position themselves for either selling a home or buying a new home? And regardless whether they're a first-time home buyer or not, 
What would be a couple pointers you would share with people that are listening to this that you think would be important? I would say the number one question right off the bat is, are you full-time or are you part-time in this position? To me, it's mm-hmm. really important to know, you know, the experience level and the full commitment whether, rather than are you doing this as a quote-unquote hobby? And, you know, the second question kind of feeds into that that I previously mentioned too was what's your experience level? And, and is your reference to full-time or not due to kind of the weekend warrior realtor who has a full-time job during the week and they can participate when they can on the weekends or evenings, uh, but aren't doing it as a full-time job, which then takes away a lot of opportunities that come up during the day that you and I know about as, as our work allows us to learn with transactions that are taking place and what properties might be available. You hit the nail on the head with that. Yeah, hundred percent. So, so when we're talking about, you know, experience level and commitment to the job, you know, real estate is a big, big, transition in most people's lives for obviously we have a lot of legal documentation that we're working with constantly. You have to have compliance. You have to have oversight. You have to have understanding of what people are getting into, what aspects of the transaction are, you know, critically important to go over rather than, you know, just kind of go, Hey, let's sign a contract and let's see if we can get this property and hope that everything goes well. I always kind of use the scenario you know, when you're hiring a pilot to fly a plane and you buy a ticket for, for that flight, you're hoping that the flight goes smoothly. And if anything hits the fan with that flight, you're hoping and praying at that point in time that that pilot has some experience that can kind of navigate uh, turbulence in, in, in the flight itself. So, you know, kind of like Sully when he landed it in the, yes. in the river Hudson. in New York, uh, the Hudson River. Absolutely. So. Right. So if it was somebody else, you know, it might have been all over, right? And and of course, that's a little dramatic because real estate isn't quite on that particular level, yet we do find ourselves from time to time in scenarios that are very, very interesting. And I always say these legal documents don't exist for nothing. I mean, there's been a situation or a scenario that has, you know, created every single piece of this particular document that we're going over. Interestingly enough, at the top of every document, it states that you should seek legal and tax and any other counsel necessary because the documents are legal binding um, documentation. And I think that's a very crucial point because, you know, you and I are both licensed in our respective part of the industry, and we have many different commitments and obligations around that licensure. Um, one of them is for you knowing the documentation inside and out that people are signing their names to and agreeing to perform. And then there's the moral and ethical side of making sure we take care of our clients that way as well. I think to your point of of the, the Scully kind of emergency landing is having a very knowledgeable and experienced realtor who understands and can kind of see into the future of the possibilities of what could happen before it happens is a huge benefit that you only get to become proficient at when you've done hundreds and even thousands of transactions Mm. that you can hedge on that problem coming up in the future. That is a, is a very much an intangible to a new client who doesn't know what to expect in a transaction. So they're getting that from you, which to me is, is probably one of the largest benefits you can get in a real estate transaction. We are very limited in time in the transaction, right? There are 30 days or less many times. So if you don't learn something until three days before closing, that's not a good time to learn any kind of hiccups that maybe 
if you were experienced, you would have caught that two and a half weeks prior. So I think that comes with hiring you as their realtor. And I know you're very, very good at foreseeing what things could happen in the very beginning of, of a transaction. Yeah, 100%. Anything from clouds on title to HOA issues, boundary issues. I always say that we are hired to execute legal documentation and to provide a path for our clients. And that's why, in my opinion, we are compensated for what we do. There are no attorneys involved in real estate transactions in the state of Colorado. I'm not even sure how many people in Colorado understand that other states are actually attorney states for real estate where attorneys handle the transaction. There are real estate agents involved, yet there are also attorneys involved. So that's a big piece of the puzzle is making sure that we're in compliance, that we're going over the documents, that we are staying within the boundaries of the contract. And we are, it should something pop up on title. Like uh, one example that I have is, you know, I helped a, a guy out, he bought a condo and there was an issue with the parking space for his condo, which was owned by the actual unit itself. Well, it was missed previously on title. And so we had to go back to the previous title commitment and the previous transaction to get that fixed. Most people wouldn't know where to start. And therein lies your experience. And that is crucial on both sides, whether someone's buying or selling. What would be a great question for a prospective seller to ask you? And what would be a great question for a prospective home buyer to ask you if it was your first meeting with them? Absolutely. So one of the top questions that I would always recommend sellers ask their agent when they show up is, how many properties have you successfully closed and sold in the past 12 months or so? And did you run into any issues during any of those transactions that you might want to share with us that would be helpful for us to know? And that's tied into being a full-time realtor. For me, it's putting myself in their their position, knowing what I know. You know, I want to make sure that they're asking the right questions. So it's not so much to lead them to where I want them to go in that particular case, because, you know, they should ask that to every, you know, I'm I'm not going to be on, let's face it, I'm not going to be on a quarter of a percentage point or a fraction of a percentage point for the listing appointments that go on in the Denver market. It's just a great question that everybody should think about and ask. You don't necessarily have to live in the neighborhood to sell a house. You know, things are done price per square foot the same way in most uh, neighborhoods. And that's what we do is research, you know, okay, what's the price per square footage right now? And we also price watch. So that's a huge part of it too. Price watch means that we are looking constantly at the market to understand what's coming, what's going, what's sold, and what's dropping out. And why are they dropping out most importantly? And then on the buyer side, some of the really important questions that should be asked up front immediately would be, you know, what are my upfront costs if I want to purchase a home? A lot of times that whole piece of the puzzle is never brought up until maybe even close to closing or in the middle of the transaction. For example, we go over upfront costs with our buyers almost immediately. So there's about three to five different items up front that a buyer needs to understand is upfront cost for them. Inspection with a couple additional things like radon and sewer scopes. So those three things during the inspection cost typically anywhere from $400 to $650, depending on the home. Earnest money is a huge, huge piece of the puzzle. A lot of people don't understand that they need to have 
1% of the purchase price available to put down upfront on the purchase of a home. And then also appraisal that's going to go through you, of course, but they need to have the funds available to pay for that. And if you go through multiple inspections, there's going to be additional inspection costs. For and it's, it's really critical to let them know that they're going to need anywhere from five to $10,000 upfront during the transaction itself. Right. You know, I think you raised two actually amazing points. One for the buyer side is expectation of funds available even prior to purchasing and closing on the home, which many people know there's closing costs, but they don't know they need them up front. And then on the seller side, I think you, you hit it on the head, and that is you don't have to be an expert in that neighborhood to be able to provide a very, very defined valuation for that seller's home because we have the advent of technology and you have the advent of information that is out there you know, to an extent that everybody has access to, but you know how to really drill down to where it really is impactful to their specific property that they're trying to sell or, or considering selling. So you don't have to be that expert. And I, I have a lot of clients who ask, who should I talk to for my real estate? I want them to be within six blocks of my, my home, their office. And, and I come back with the same thing. And the beauty of technology is, we all have access to the information. It's how do you define that and how do you compare it to what else has been selling in the neighborhood? And it sounds like you're right on that. So that's fantastic. Right, but I think it's a, a very, very uh, appropriate comment to make around that and holds a lot of weight. So great couple of questions for people to think about. There are a lot of reasons to own real estate. And I know you know what those are. And I think it'd be important maybe to share that with our the listeners today on what those things, if you want to hit a couple very important points around it so that it just raises awareness about if you're a first-time home buyer or you want to be a, a, a investor and purchase a new home as a rental property, or you're a seller and you want to buy another home, they've probably seen the valuation increases over time. What are some of those things you would highlight to some people when you speak to them? Yeah, one of the top things, so if I were to work it from kind of a high-level view all the way down, the first and foremost, the number one thing in home ownership, in my opinion, is that it creates and builds better communities. And that may sound cliche a little bit, yet it's true. If you have homeowners in a neighborhood, whether it's condos, townhouses, or detached single-family homes, the pride of ownership in those areas is much better, right? And as opposed to areas that are heavily rented, the pride of ownership is real. So from that high level, it helps communities grow and become better and better. Then next, obviously, as you're coming down, a couple of things that really strike a chord with me is that I understand that children that are raised in a home that is owned by the parents grow up with better self-esteem. They are most of the time pretty well balanced. They just have a sense of you know, belonging and things of that nature. So I always want to speak with anybody that's interested in, in having a better family life and, and create a better atmosphere for their family, you know, for kids to have a yard to play in, kids to have their own space in a home. Even if it's a condo and it's not huge, it's still something that they have that, that is theirs. And there's always mm -hmm. a sense of pride with that. And as you keep coming down, obviously we understand that homeowners – tend to build wealth a much higher clip than people that stay in rentals. I don't 
recall the exact number on the difference in wealth. I think it's like 65 times greater wealth for homeowners versus people that rent. And I always want to share that information with people and say the true way to build wealth, quote unquote wealth, wealth is kind of a loose term, yet the true way to create a legacy and wealth within your family is to be a homeowner. And then, of course, you know, you can get really technical with real estate. You can you can invest. You can buy additional properties. You can fix them up and, and resell them. Yet that that's a whole nother ball game. But at the end of the day, uh, home ownership to me means a lot. I grew up in a home that was owned by my parents, and you know, I always felt like it was mine. You know, and that was a, that was a great feeling. And grew up with the same kids in the same neighborhood for the most part. And, you know, you can think back on those memories of your neighborhood and your friends, their homes and, and things of that nature and, and just see how it's helped all those families kind of evolve. And it also teaches young kids to believe in the fact that they can be homeowners too one day. Right. Which I think is a very powerful message to present to your, to your children or your families. And it's interesting as you were, telling your story about this for whatever reason went right back to when I grew up when my family owned a home or homes. And then um, when my family unfortunately separated from whatever reasons, we then became a renting family. The vibe of the community was totally different. I wasn't hanging out with the same families day in and day out, playing outside and playing baseball and riding skateboards. It was just a different feel and people were coming and going and moving every six months or every year. Mm. So it's interesting that that I think our listeners who are listening to your podcast will probably could probably relate to that very much though, because it's a different experience when you go through that. I think it's a poignant, very poignant uh, comment. And I think it hits home and home to me is hits your heart, right? That's kind of where I feel like you're coming from in those comments. And there's a lot that goes with that. I know you have a wonderful family. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about them. Yeah, they're the bosses of the crew. I always believed if I have a son, he'll probably be just like me. And if, if we have a little girl, I'm sure she'll be just like my wife. Well, we ended up with one son and my wife and my son, you can I always laugh. I, I think they share the same brain. Yeah, they're so similar. And I'm kind of the guy in the middle, but uh, that's okay. Um, so. My son's a senior in high school right now. He um, He's a very strong-willed kid. He's really intelligent, loves to work out. I think he works out twice a day right now. And he's played sports growing up. He loves to go skiing. And we've been really, really close. Uh, he and I have always been thick as thieves. And my wife and I, we've been together for, oh, my goodness, about 22 years now. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, we're hitting our 20-year wedding anniversary this summer. So we've been together. We've grown up together in a lot of ways. And I was always joking when she was young. She was really young when we first met. She was still like 19 or 20. And I always thought, I joked with her. I'd say, oh, yeah, you know, it'll be easy because I'll be able to kind of, you know, train you. And and it was the exact opposite. She was so strong-willed. And she... She was just this really strong-willed woman that taught me so much, allowed me to come out of my shell, too, and taught me how to 
have a voice and an opinion and things like that when I was younger. You know, maybe I didn't feel as confident. And I really give her a lot of credit for for allowing me to kind of learn from her too and grow with her. And then I had this awesome little boy, and he used to say funny things when he was little. He couldn't have been much over like seven or eight years old. And I remember I was going for the job with Chase Bank back in the day. I was only with him for a couple of years, and I had to go through a bunch of interviews and at one point he was like I said he was about seven years old and he he told me he said dad when it comes time to go in to negotiate your salary you send me in and I'll take care of that that's amazing <laughs> and I thought well, you've got a little seven-year-old that's ready to go negotiate so he, he's he's pretty pretty impressive he was he was the kid in in uh, daycare that would uh that would line up all the children as they're walking and make sure everybody's holding their hands and doing all this stuff and in the the his preschool teachers would always tell us at the end of the day, we're not sure what he's going to do, but he's going to be a CEO of some company or something because he sure is the boss. And uh, well, you know, now I just kind of laugh about it because they're, they're both really strong willed. And of course they love me because I kind of calm both of them down a little bit. <laughs> well, sounds like should you ever want to turn over your company to a CEO, you've got one already built in there. There you go. Yeah. Which would be interesting and fun at the same time. Yeah. I'm going to um, let him kind of spread his wings and figure out what he wants to do with his life. And if he wants to explore real estate down the road, it's always going to be there for him. Now, speaking of your son being in high school, uh, you had mentioned in some literature I read that uh, when you were younger in junior high school, one of your thoughts uh, as far as the profession goes was becoming a doctor. I was just curious why why that profession and what happened to that option as a, a career for you? <laughs> yeah, Mr. Buzzkill. Yeah, I, I had a teacher <laughs> back in back in junior high school. So the inception of the idea behind being a doctor, it really in my opinion, it wasn't so much my I well, it was partially my idea and then it was kind of cultivated from there. So when I was young, my grandma passed away at an early age, she was only about 56 years old when she passed away. This was back in like the late seventies, early eighties. And she had heart problems. And so she had several open heart surgeries. And I kind of remember, you know, talking to her and I, I told her, I said, grandma, when I'm, when I grow up, I'm going to be a doctor so I can fix you. So that's where that came from that thought. And I just remember after that, my dad would always say little things about being a doctor. And but as time went on, you know, and school was a little challenging for me. I wasn't quite a straight A student. I ended up in uh, a class in junior high and I had an English teacher and we would spend time talking about the future. I remember I brought it up. I said, when I grow up, I'm, I'm going to be a doctor. And he he looked at me really serious. I can still picture his face. And he's like, do you realize in order to be a doctor, you have to be practically a straight A student. They go back and they look at all your records from the time you were in elementary school through. <laughs> into med school. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I guess I'm not going to be a doctor. But, yeah, it was a little more traumatic at the time than that. Wow. I would just say that. He missed the mark in encouraging people and maybe he thought he was being realistic yet he really was doing some damage with his yeah. words. And, you know, when I think of a teacher, I don't think of a teacher 
in the sense of people that are supposed to kill people's dreams and kill people's ideas of what they can or cannot be. And, you know, the reason why my grades weren't so great was because I grew up undiagnosed as being dyslexic. That was, uh, you know, that was, it was tough, man. It was really hard to read and write back then. Thank right. God it was a minor form of dyslexia. So over time I became a really good reader and a really good writer. Yet, you know, when I was younger, it was really challenging. So from that perspective, it kind of stunned me a little bit, yet it also gave me another drive to, I felt like I've used a lot of energy to prove people wrong rather than right at certain times, which isn't the greatest thing. Now I think of it in terms of just continuing to evolve and grow and prove myself right. And, and again, what I read about it was, uh, and you coined the, the name of this teacher, Mr. Burst Your Bubble. Uh, <laughs> that that actually motivated you to kind right. of take yourself to the next step and say, I, I can show you what I, what I'm really capable of. Sure. And you, without having that support from a, a teacher who we all look up to as children or, or young adults or teenagers is very difficult to comprehend. And, and then it's very impactful in how we make decisions going forward. And so to your point, teachers, usually are in a position of helping and they're supportive and they are motivating. There's, there's always that Mr. Burst Your Bubble somewhere out there, unfortunately. And uh, good for you to kind of take a look at that and go, yeah, that, that's not me. I, I have other things that I can share and bring to, to this world and, and this community of people I'm going to eventually learn and, and grow with. You mentioned skiing with your son, and I know you're a skier because you and I went skiing a couple of weeks ago, and that, yep. that was fun to do together. Uh, is there anything else you like to do outside of skiing that kind of outside the real estate community? Yeah. Other than working. Yeah. In real estate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love to travel with my wife. We don't travel a ton outside of the States, but we love to go to Mexico and travel and go to resorts and, you know, decompress and go there, you know, for a week to 10 days at a time. And so we love that. I love sporting events. I always wanted to live in Denver when I was growing up. I, I grew up 100 miles north of Denver in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And so I was just infatuated with the Broncos when I was a kid and, and the Nuggets and, you know, later the Rockies. And so when I was younger, I had a huge passion to follow, you know, the Denver sports teams. And that was a huge thing for me to get to Colorado and, you know, just to see what the city's evolved into. There's so many fun things to do around here from hiking to camping and skiing and enjoying the the mountains as well as you know enjoying the city and you know i love the craft beer is brewed in denver it's it's amazing the restaurants the the different pockets in the city there's a saying that says you know six pack abs are really cool and all but have you tasted craft beer before <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, oh yes, yeah. Oh, if, if that was the question, yes, I have. Beer, I have a six pack, but that just isn't going to happen. So it's it's okay. I'm 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 okay with that. You know, and it is what it is. But I I love Mexican food and craft beer and all the places to go hang out with friends. You know, hopefully soon. You know, we can all get back together and do that. I'm right behind you with the uh, Mexican food and the beer. It's uh, my, my choice my choice of style of food if, if I had one on any given day. So, Jeff, I um, wanted to thank you for your time and talking today and getting to know you a little bit more. And I hope that people that are listening to this podcast about yourself 
are uh, taking away a lot of things that are important to you in your profession, your family life, and how you, how you can see things going forward within the community of real estate. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners that we haven't discussed today that would be important for them to know about you? Yeah, well, first off, thank you so much for having me. I, I've really enjoyed this, and it's always fun to uh, get interviewed. I love interviews, and that's part of the reason why I love real estate, I guess. I get to walk into people's house and interview for a job all the time. I would just say, you know, most people don't know what they don't know. And when it comes to real estate and investments, things of that nature, don't just think about, you know, yourself and, and the person that you're with. Think in terms of your friends and your family. Who could benefit from working with a professional? Previously, I had a great job and great income, and I could have bought a house, and I didn't do it just because I didn't know that there was an option for that. So people just don't quite understand how to have that path lit. And if you, if you have any friends or family that would love to um, be homeowners, don't make any assumptions on that. Just send them my way and I'll have a nice friendly conversation with them and we'll figure out what the options are because for the most part, it's, it's always an option. Great parting information and, and definitely something to think about. Jeff, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to reach you? The number one way to reach me would be to reach out on my cell, which is 720-854-4834. Or you can send me an email to jefflovato at kw.com. If that doesn't work, you can always go to my website, which is thelovatogroup.com and register there. Jeff, I want to thank you for your time. It was great getting to know you a little bit more. Thanks for sharing your information and your experience in the business. I look forward to getting back in touch with you another time soon. Thank you so much. That was yeah. fun. Let's go get some uh, Mexican food and some craft beer. <laughs> that would be excellent. Thanks, Jeff. It's Jeff Lovato with the Lovato Group, and I'm Mitch Friedman with Pivot Lending Group. This episode was brought to you by Pivot Lending Group, NMLS 10995. Copyright 2021, Pivot, all rights reserved. Financial Funding Solutions Incorporated, DBA Pivot Lending Group. 10397 West Centennial Road, Littleton, Colorado, 80127. Pivot does business in accordance with the Fair Housing Law and Equal Credit Opportunity Act. Pivot Lending is regulated by the Division of Real Estate, Colorado. To learn more or find a full listing of our state licensing, visit pivotlending.com or nmlsconsumeraccess.org.